as I said in the introduction, I'm so excited to speak to you about this passage. I could not wait to get here this morning. So let's get at it. The dawning of an unconquerable and unending light. Why did the Apostle John write his gospel? You know the answer. We've said it before. We've looked at it previously. But we must keep it ever before us because it relates to every verse written in that gospel. We don't need to guess why he wrote. John gives us his reason for writing the gospel, his own personal purpose statement. It's in John 20, begins with verse 30 on your scripture sheet. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, signs that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. In order, I wrote this, in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, by believing you may have life in his name. In every chapter, either John the Apostle or John the Baptizer or Jesus himself is claiming and demonstrating the deity of Jesus. Someone has said that Christianity is Christ. I agree with that statement. But I would say it in a different way. I would say Christianity stands or falls on the deity and on the humanity of Jesus. If he's not the son of God from glory, then he is a liar, he's a charlatan, he's a deceiver. And so is John, and so is John the baptizer. Because on every page of John's gospel, you have Jesus claiming to be God. Mark this. It's especially true in John's gospel. I see it here in his gospel more than any other. Jesus is always speaking of his pre-existence, his existence before his birth. Now, he's not speaking about the Hindu doctrine of reincarnation, where one is continuously being reincarnated as an animal or another human being. Jesus is speaking of coming from God in glory, being God in glory and being with God in glory. He also speaks, especially in John's gospel again, of returning to glory after his mission is done. Think about it this way. When were you born? When were you born? Where were you born? We mark the beginning of our lives with a certain hour and date. I was born in the evening of September 8th, 1944, after a brief stay in my mother's womb. I did not exist before then. I cannot speak of any pre-existence. I was born in San Diego, California, geographically. I did not exist before that time in another geographical location. 
Jesus claims he existed in glory as God and with God and that he came from glory to Bethlehem of Israel. Jesus records, or John records, Jesus proving his claims. He not only claimed to be God, but that's where the miracles came from. The miracles were a demonstration of his deity. You name the miracle. Did he ever pray? Did he, did he pray for that to occur? No, he just ordered and it occurred. John also records Jesus making verbal claims of deity. Jesus keeps telling, over and over again, he keeps telling his disciples, the crowds, the Jewish authorities, who he is and from whence he came. We've been looking at this now for months. Chapter 7 and 8 find Jesus in the middle of a firestorm because of those claims. If he hadn't made those claims, he wouldn't be in the firestorm. He's attending in those chapters the great feast of tabernacles in Jerusalem. It's only six months before Passover when he's killed in that city. It's a dangerous place for him to be. As the Jewish authorities have been pl plotting for some time to kill him. Why? Because of his blasphemy. Because of these claims. Now, in reading the entire eighth chapter, perhaps Maybe you looked at the title of the message and said we're going to be in the 8th chapter. Well, if you read it, you probably got lost in reading it and said, what is this about? Why are they saying this? And why is Jesus saying this? It's easy to get lost in this debate. What is it? What's the 8th chapter? It's simply an ongoing argument, an ongoing debate that Jesus has with the Pharisees about his identity about his purpose, about his claims. Now, you may want to pass over this. You may say, well, this really doesn't speak to me where I am. Folks, what a great chapter for us to assimilate in every way that we can. You see, we are in a firestorm. We ourselves are in the middle of a firestorm for a similar reason. Why was Jesus in the firestorm? Because he was claiming to be God and the authorities did not believe him. We are in the middle of the firestorm because we believe Jesus was and is the Son of God. We believe his miracles. We believe he died an atoning death. We believe he was raised to life. We believe he returned to glory and there resides with the Father waiting to return to bring a final reckoning to the history of mankind. Do you believe that about Jesus? Do you? Don't say to me, well, of course I believe. No, I mean, do you really, really believe it? Heart and soul believe it. Do you believe that about Jesus? If you do, then you are at odds with the secular culture that is dominating the United States. The universities, the universities, the University of Tennessee, the University of Mississippi, Vanderbilt University, they scoff at this Jesus. They scoff 
at your Jesus in which you believe. They scoff at your faith. Every major institution of our land is at war with the supernatural Christ of the gospel. The secular culture. This is real. The secular culture believes that Christ Presbyterian is ludicrous and daily tries to marginalize her. Our culture is trying to do to Christ and Christianity what Marxist Russia and China have tried to do for the last 100 years. If you do not understand that you are in just in, in that you are in a firestorm, just as Jesus was. If you don't understand that, you are terribly naive. But we're going to do this morning what Jesus did in the eighth chapter of John when he was in the firestorm. We're going to do the same thing. We're going to once more insist on our claim that he's the son of God come from glory. Because that's exactly what Jesus did in the eighth chapter. First, one more piece of background. In the Mishnah, the Mishnah was a Jewish commentary, a rabbinical commentary that the rabbis put together, a commentary on the Old Testament, an Old Testament history. In the Mishnah, we have recorded the joy, the elation, the dancing celebration that was expressed, always expressed in this great Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, it's the harvest feast. The harvest is in. The barns are full. It's a time of joy. It's a time of celebration. Well, in the, in the women's court in the temple, there were four huge, huge lamps. In the evening, during the tabernacle feast, each evening, these lamps, these great lamps would be lit. And the light could be seen all over Jerusalem. We read this in the Mishnah. Men of piety and good works danced through the night, holding burning torches in their hands, singing songs and praises. The Levitical orchestras cut loose. What's happening there? A great party, a great celebration. And sources say this went on every night. These torches, these fires, these great lamps. Scholars believe that this was the context that Jesus made his statement in verse 12. I am the light of the world. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm sorry. <clears throat> I need to thank you, Ron. <clears throat> that's where he made the claim. I am the light of the world. But this claim has a messianic background from the Old Testament. It's not just, it didn't just come out of nowhere. Jesus didn't just look at the light. And say, you know what? I am the light of the world. It's not what happened. Those lights were there. But he was looking back to the Old Testament. 
to a specific prophecy. Thank you, Ron. He was looking back at a specific prophecy from the Old Testament. We read it this morning. You said we didn't read the Old Testament. Yes, we did in our call to worship. We're all familiar with these words. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and so on. You know these verses. You can say them by heart. Every Christmas, we hear them. We hear them, we say, it must be Christmas. We hear them and we sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. The Son has been given. Of whom do those words speak? If you had asked any of those Jewish authorities that were talking to Jesus, if you had asked them, if you had quoted from Isaiah, for unto us a child is given, for unto us a son is given. If you had said, to whom do those words refer? Every one of them would have said, those are messianic words. That's the Messiah. But this morning, at this point, I want to focus on what comes just before those words. Because it's why Jesus stood and said, I'm the light of the world. The, the, that, the words, for unto us a child is born, it's inextricably, inextricably entwined with what comes before. It's part of a unit. So let's go back at what came before Look at Isaiah 8.19. Now, at the beginning, this is not going to make a lot of sense, but you'll understand it in just a minute. Luke 8, I mean, Isaiah 8.19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no light, they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously about their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress, and they will behold distress and darkness and gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought in contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made the way, the glory, made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Now what was happening? It's not hard to understand. Isaiah was describing a great darkness that had engulfed northern Israel. Israel had been attacked by one of them, by the single most vicious nation in the world at that time. They'd been attacked by Syria. The part of Israel affected first and worst were the two northern tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. They were conquered by Assyria. 
run over by Assyria. Much of the population, imagine this happening here. Much of the population was simply carried off. Families were split. Men, women, and children were massacred. Some were carried off into slavery. They were replaced by Assyrians who brought their own pagan gods with them. These people believed in child sacrifice. This was a dark time. Look at the words distress, darkness, and gloom of anguish thrust into thick darkness. It was now, this was not a physical darkness. It wasn't, it. the sun was still shining. It was the darkness of evil. It was the darkness of slavery. It was the darkness of cruel, cruelty. Keep that, you know, let that stay in your mind. Think of Afghanistan. Think of Kabul this week. That's what it was. Instead of turning to the light of God's word, they turn to the false prophets of the pagans. Look at verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no light. He's saying that even the prophets were the false prophets. We're bringing darkness. A necromancer was a magician, a wizard that sought answers by communicating with the dead. Think of a seance. So the land was dark with evil, slavery, cruelty, child sacrifice. And the Old Testament church would not turn to God's word, but sought answers from communicating with the dead. The church just increased the darkness. But then something happens here that turns good. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The anguish has passed. And Isaiah starts talking about a future time. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. He brought them into judgment. But in the latter time, he's made glorious. He acts as if it's already happened. But he's, it's really a prophecy. He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land of the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. You see, Naphtali and Zebulun, that was Galilee. God spoke to Isaiah of a great light that would one day come to that same province. That's where the Messiah would begin his work. Naphtali and Zebulun, that's where Nazareth was. That is where Capernaum was. That's where Jesus began his ministry That was the longest part of his ministry. And what does he say? But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness. The people who lived through that darkness. On them, a light has dawned. They've seen a great light. The gloom introducing the gloom introduced by killing thousands being carried off into slavery, by the enslavement of those who remained in the land, that gloom would come to an end. And the people of Zebulun and Naphtali would witness a dawning. They never like no like had never been seen. A light 
then that light would be the dawning of the coming of the Messiah. And Isaiah identified that light in this way. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. At the Feast of Fast Forward, at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus was proclaiming himself to be that light. Ah, I'm the light of Galilee. I'm the light of Israel. I'm the light of the world. Now, just as that was not a physical darkness, it was a spiritual darkness. Remember, we said the sun was still shining, but that land was dark into evil and cruelty. Well, Jesus here is not referring to the physical brightness of his glory. Remember, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he took Peter, James, and John up, and he was transfigured. He was affirming their confession that he indeed was the Christ, the Son of God. It was shortly after that. And the glory of God, the glory of the eternal Son, broke through his physical body. Peter, James, and John said it was as bright as the noonday sun. It was blinding. Well, that's not, that's not the light he's talking about here. No, this light, when he said, I'm the light of the world, he was talking about the light of his life. A, life that he, a light that he brought into this fallen and dark world. Think about it. What did Jesus do? Wherever he went, what did he do? He pushed back the darkness. And the results of the darkness. He met a leper. No leper ever left him with leprosy. He was healed. He stopped it. He made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, paralyzed to walk. It was the light of all that healing. It was the light of his miracles. It was the light of his whole life. It was the light of the Sermon on the Mount. It was the light brought by his grace. It was the light brought by his atoning death and resurrection. It was the light that made the blind to see and the deaf to hear. It was the light that shone in the dark lives of the adulteress and the prostitutes, the tax gatherers. It was the grace that embraced them. That was the light. And the Pharisees understood the audacious claims Christ had just made, claiming to be the light. Of which Isaiah spoke. Look at it. So the Pharisees, verse 13. So the Pharisees ask him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Can't do that. Your testimony is not true. They were saying, Why are you saying this about yourself? You're obviously lying. And a great debate ensues that takes up the rest of the chapter. But I this morning, I only want to look. Go back to that verse, verse 12. Let's read it again. And Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. I'm the light that came to the darkness of Naphtali and Zebulun. And then he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Everyone forgets that. Everyone says, I'm the light of the world. But these words are huge. Whoever follows me. This is a statement of fact about those who follow Jesus. Whoever follows me. So 
Do you follow Christ? Do you? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? If so, he's speaking to you. If I'm his follower, he's speaking to me. He's saying we will not live in the darkness of rebellion against God's word. We'll no longer live like that. What happens? We live different lives after Christ. Our calendar is marked before Christ, after Christ. A.D. Or, or, or. Before Christ and after Christ. A transformation takes place. A transformation took place in history. The Messianic age began. Well, that's what happens in our lives. Here's the before. Here's the after. He says, you'll not live in the manner of the world. You'll not live like the world is. Your language will be different. Your walk will be different. Not only will you not, only will you not walk in the manner of darkness, You'll actually have the light. Go back to the verse. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you realize he's talking about you? You have something the world. Here's the world does not have the light of life. You have a light of life. We're born again in Christ by the power of the spirit. We're indwelled by the spirit of Christ. Thus we have the light of Christ in us. I'm not sure about this, Joe. Well, get sure about it. Let's look at Matthew 5, 14. Look at it. Jesus said it. You, speaking to the disciples, speaking to you, you are the light of the world. He not only said, I'm the light of the world. He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify, not glorify you, but glorify and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What makes us light to the world around us? It's not our personalities. That's why there can be no conceit in it. There's no arrogance here. It's not about our personalities. It's not about our athleticism. It's not about musical ability or scholarship. One can have scholarship, athleticism, musical ability. One can have those abilities and still be an ally of Satan, can still be living in darkness. It's not, that's not what makes us light. It's our relationship with Christ that makes us light to the world around us. Totally. It has nothing to do with personality. Nothing to do with musical building. Nothing to do with all the talent God's given us. In closing, I want to call your attention to what the Apostle John said about Jesus in the first chapter of John. It's a great place to close. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life. Now, that life was light, right? In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. What did we say at the beginning? What's the title? The dawning of an unconquerable and unending light. It's an eternal light. 
And it cannot be conquered. It's unconquerable. The darkness could not overcome the light of Christ. Herod tried. The Pharisees tried. Pilate tried. Satan tried. The world crucified him. And he turned that very crucifixion. He turned that cruel cross into the light of salvation. Think about that. The very cross on which he was slain became bright with the light. The cross is a symbol of our victory, not our defeat. And the world is still trying. They tried to, the, you know, Pilate, Herod, all of them tried to put out the light of Christ. They couldn't. The world's still trying to put out his light that continues to shine through his people. Marks, Lenin, Stalin, they tried in Russia. Said, we can't have Christ in Russia. We can't have Christ, the Son of God, in Russia. Marx hated him. They outlawed the church. They burned Bibles. They slaughtered Christians, not by the thousands or hundreds of thousands. They slaughtered them by the millions. But they couldn't put out the light of Christ in Russia. This is in the 20th century, people. This is not 2,000 years ago. This is not Rome. This is modern man, civilized, supposedly. Mao Zedong tried in China. Perhaps he killed more Christians than any man in all of history. But he could not extinguish the light of Christ in China. In fact, the church grew exponentially under his reign of terror. Read those words. And the darkness has not overcome it. I love the story of the two Protestant bishops that were murdered on October 16th, 1555, in Oxford, England. Their names were Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. As he was being tied to the stake, I mean... I don't want to be burned alive. If you do want to be burned alive, something's wrong with you. But you know what he prayed? Oh, he stood at that stake as they were chaining him to the stake. Oh, Heavenly Father, I give unto thee most hearty thanks that thou hast called me to be a professor of thee, even unto death. I beseech thee, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England and deliver it from all our enemies. As they were being engulfed by these flames, Latimer encouraged Ridley. He shouted over to Ridley and he said, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man as we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust, shall never be put out. Well, they didn't become light that day. They had been light to England for several decades. In fact, their friends had tried to realize that Bloody Mary was after them. She wanted to kill them. 
And they pleaded with them to, to get to another country. But they replied that they were called to be light in England and they would stay. Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace. Oh, I wish I'd have been there. I would have shouted at Latimer and said, that light has been shining through you for years. Changed England. 466 years later, we're still talking about the light. Of those two men. Do you look around our secular culture and get depressed? It's powerful. It is distressing. But there's one thing it can't do it can't put out the light of Christ in you. That's quite impossible. So take heart. Take heart. Our hymn is most fitting.